Well, welcome to the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host from News Talk Florida. My guests on our panel, as always, we have Joe Henderson on the left. We have Tom Jackson on the right. Gentlemen, item number one, day one of the Democratic National Convention in the city of brotherly love, and it was a bit of an interesting day to be sure. Joseph, being the keeper of the liberal keys, I'll give you first up on this topic. Well, it, it's the day started off like a, just a total meltdown for the Democrats <clears throat> following the WikiLeaks uh, expose, and the, and it just looked like it was going to start to get away uh, from Hillary Clinton before it even got started. Having said that, I thought they made a nice recovery toward the end of the day. It started with Michelle Obama's uh, terrific speech, and I thought Bernie Sanders was nothing short of uh, tremendous uh, in his talk. And it didn't hurt that uh, Sarah Silverman uh, just talked down the, the Bernie people with what will probably go down as one of the great lines in convention history. And she nailed it. So um, this could have been uh, a fireball uh, that consumed the convention, but I think they might have wiggled off the hook a little bit. Tom, any observations from your side on the first day? Well, that is certainly one way to look at it. Um, no one will be shocked, I think, to, to, to understand that I looked at it pretty differently. I will give, though, proper props to uh, Michelle Obama, who delivered a terrific speech. And I love I, I the crack somebody came back with on, on uh, Twitter. And uh, just wait four years, you'll get to hear Melania give the same speech. Again, so uh, you know that's they're just never going to let that one die. But um, the idea that Bernie Sanders gave a great speech just uh, is is one of those things that will separate Joe and me for all time. It was uh, Bernie's speech was the speech that he's been giving. It was his stump speech. It's the same speech that he has been giving 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 throughout the uh, the primary season, and it is a laundry list. Of, of grievances against the uh, against America as uh, a laundry list of ways that uh, this great country that um, that Michelle Obama says exists even right now has to change. Um, Bernie said in his how long did he go on? Forty five minutes, an hour. It, it was uh, a while. Said, it was a while. It was he, he, well, but laundry list I guess take a take a while to to lay out, uh, but he. He just laid out uh, one gimme program after another. We're going to have we're going to have free tuition, and we're going to uh, we're, we're going to roll back the First Amendment, and we're going to do one thing after another that amounts to, as he said, seven times revolution. This is a great country, but it needs revolution. And what did he not talk about at all? Did he not mention even once? He did not mention liberty. He did not mention freedom. He did not mention the Constitution. So, Joe, you can say that was a great speech if you want to, but I'm on the 50% of America who say that was absolutely chilling. Well, Thomas, this will shock you that I disagree with you on this, because why it was a great speech, sure it was a stump speech, sure we'd heard a lot of it before, but the people that that was aimed at were the 
the Bernie supporters in the House telling them, okay, folks, these are the things we fought for. We got some of them in the platform, and you've got to get behind the candidate right now because you can't have Donald Trump be the president of this here United States of America. That's why it was a great speech. Compare and contrast to the Republican runner-up last week. I think Bernie carried the day on that card. I think the other part of it, guys, from my standpoint looking at it, was that I was impressed that Bernie's job, and Tom, you alluded to it, Joe, you alluded to it as well. He was basically being the wrangler of his own his own uh, revolution, and that was, you know, yes, it was a stump speech, but at the end of the day, he had to pull that group together in hopes of getting some solidarity so that as the convention moves forward, that there won't be these uprisings in Philadelphia. And I think that while he did give a stump speech, uh, I think he came as close as possible to saying, look, and I think this is pretty much how he put it out. We started a revolution the only way this revolution moves forward is if we revolutionize the, the Democratic Party, and the only way to do that is to get these you know, things involved in the in the platform, and then, of course, closing it with the only way that works is if we elect Hillary Clinton as president. So I don't think he was doing anything other than trying to speak to his people with it. So it was a subset of the entire group in hopes of, um, of getting them over. All that being said, people being polled going in there, 90% of the people who are Bernie followers were, gonna, were going to vote for Hillary anyway. So again, it's a subset of a subset that he was speaking to. And in all in all, I think he, he got across to them what he was hoping to get across. But I think, Tom, you wanted to say something. I think I might have cut you off. Well, I... I, I would not disagree with any of that, but I think that there is a larger political risk. Um, sure, people who go, people who are being polled as they go into a convention are largely going to be people who are active in politics anyway and are committed to supporting the, uh, the nominee of the party, last week notwithstanding. And so you're going to get 90% of those people saying, yes, ultimately, they're going to vote for for Hillary Clinton. I mean, they're they're like Zach Mayo. They got nowhere else to go, right? Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's who their person is. But you have a huge swath of of Democrats who supported Bernie Sanders, who bought into everything that she that that he said about her ties to Wall Street and big banks, and that she can't be trusted. And those people out in the world, yes, Bernie was trying to reach to them. I'm not sure that that's going to be all that successful. And at the same time, at the same time, you are alerting people who thought that Bernie was dangerous, that that, that 50% of the country that is center right and far right, you're alerting them that, guess what? Hillary might not be as trustworthy on certain things that we thought she might be, and we're going to have to have another look. So Hillary gets reintroduced yet again. I think one of the other things to, to um, and again, we're getting into the subset of the subset, but I think one of the things that if you're a political uh, running a campaign, the last thing you want to do is have tossed on your desk the analytics, you know, the sabermetrics of, of politics. 
and see the cross tab that says that your followers, your, your largest group of followers are 18 to 34. They're the least most attractive group of people to have in politics, although they're the most you know, attractive group to have when it comes to advertising. They're just not consistent. So I think where the Trump folks and the Hillary folks are looking is where in that area of Bernie followers, which are tend to be a little older above that 18 to 34 group, where can I go like in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and others where we can find them? So I think that's where we are in that particular situation. Uh, guys, our guest is uh, our guest has showed up, and uh, let me uh, introduce Marev Severe. She is, without question, one of the most talented reporters and anchors for I24 News, and she's joining us from Tel Aviv. Marev, uh, join my, uh, myself, Jim Williams here, of course, with Joe Henderson and Tom Jackson. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Jim. You're making me blush, and no one can even see it. Well, there you go. It's, it's been it's, a pleasure being on your show many times, uh, and now I get to reciprocate and have you join us this evening. It is my pleasure. So you've been watching the Republican National Convention and now the Democratic National Convention. Some observations from your standpoint? Some observations. Well, it's definitely been fun. I feel like I've been watching uh, a lot of it in sort of a delay, if you if you will, not because we get it later, just because we're sleeping while the best parts of it happen. So we seem to be getting uh, the parts of it all cut up by the U.S. media or global media. And then it's making it a little difficult for us to really catch up on everything with the time that we do have. Uh, it's definitely been an interesting ride, waiting to see how the rest of this week plays out with the Democratic National Convention. And, you know, we've seen already the polls swing in Donald Trump's uh, in his way. Obviously, that has a lot to do with the fact that the RNC is already over. So we'll have to wait and see if this balances out at the end of this week as well. It's funny. Uh, we've had, uh, prior to you coming uh, on, we were chatting about... Uh, some of the uh, speeches that were given and obviously unanimously we thought Michelle Obama's speech was good uh, but we had some some feedback uh, from both Tom and Joe on differing between whether they thought Bernie Sanders gave a good speech or not uh, did you happen to see Bernie's speech and if so any comments on it I didn't see the speech in its entirety. Uh, from what I do understand is he spent a lot of it focusing on his policy and something that he has uh, kept uh, pushing, even though he stepped back from the limelight and given the stage to Hillary Clinton. What will be interesting to see going forward is whether or not his supporters, the diehard Bernie or bust, will follow him in his way of endorsing Hillary Clinton. And, uh, you know, 90 percent, uh, I don't know the exact statistics, but you can say most of them will probably vote Hillary because they prefer to Donald Trump, but what the diehard ones, the ones who go door to door knocking, where they will end up uh, come November and whether or not they will go towards a libertarian or a third party and it may actually hurt Hillary Clinton's chances and swing the momentum towards Donald Trump. It'll be interesting hey, to see. Uh, can I jump in here for a second, Jim? Uh, this is Joe. And uh, just curious about how Donald Trump is received uh, over in your part of the world. 
Donald Trump is an interesting character as well as uh, here as in other parts of the world. I've actually, uh, since I spoke to Jim earlier today, been also checking with friends of mine uh, in Europe uh, how Europeans are perceiving him. And uh, one of my colleagues who works with us for London, he actually said something very entertaining. He said, you know, uh, Londoners and Brit the Brits are pretty upset with the Brexit vote. And now they're watching the United States and saying, well, you know what, they may actually do something worse by voting in Donald Trump. Uh, one of my colleagues in Germany saying as well, that the Germans are fascinated by him, obviously not speaking for everybody, but they're not used to such a character in politics that it's something that's coming out of left field for them and has been somewhat of a source of entertainment. In Israel, it's kind of swung both ways. You do see a lot of Israelis who find him entertaining. Some who have also come out and said, you know what, maybe this could be dangerous. We don't know exactly what will come of him, a man who does not have any sort of political background, and it's all coming from business. Um, but it's also not something that is very spoken about in Israel. If you go out to cafes, restaurants, or bars, people aren't really paying attention as of right now to the U.S. elections. For them, they don't even understand why the process is so long and why they should be paying attention now. They'll probably start talking about it more come September and October when it's just weeks away. Well, we don't understand yeah. why the process has to be so long either, but that's another story. <laughs> because the First Amendment, Joe, because the First Amendment. Oh, there's that. <laughs> that thing. But Rev, one of uh, the things that I, I think that's interesting is that in the case of Hillary Clinton, you have a relationship that she's had over mm -hmm. now decades with uh, your prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, mm -hmm. actually, as a matter of fact, even having uh, sharing some of the same political advisors and some of the same campaign people uh, involved in, uh, in electing Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well as uh, uh, those same people worked in the in the Clinton camp. There has been definitely been a long relationship between the two. I also don't know how many Israelis on the street would know that history of relations and exactly uh, what type of relationship uh, Hillary Clinton and Benjamin Netanyahu have had over the years. What I find interesting is uh, over the last couple of months when Israel and the United States have been negotiating this memorandum of understanding for an aid package, I, Benjamin Netanyahu and people kept reiterating, waiting for the next president, waiting for the next president, because whether or not it would be Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, they saw it as a better opportunity for Barack Obama. So that's one thing that Israelis already see. They see anything that comes into the White House is better than what has been in the past with Barack Obama over the last eight years. I think once, as I said, it boils down to September, October, they will start learning more about the two candidates. And Israelis, of course, will want to vote for whoever is better for Israel. And, uh, and I use the word want because most of them cannot vote. There are a lot of Israeli Americans here, or American Israelis, whichever way you'd like to phrase it. And among them, the debate is actually very interesting. Most of them that at least I know and have spoken to leaning towards Hillary. Um, but there are some who say, you know, we, we see where Donald Trump is coming from. We see some of his policies and we're, we want to wait this out. We're not willing to make up our mind just yet. Obviously, everybody here also voting via uh, absentee ballot. So we'll know, we're not sure how much we'll actually have to say for here. Tom, uh, Tom Jackson here. I, 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 do, I do have a, a couple of questions. Um, we had a, uh, a there seems to be a, a hardcore um, small minority, but it's a vocal minority in the Democratic Party here in the United States that 
can can be said to be reliably anti-Israel. And one of the mm-hmm. one of the members of of that group, um, a, a congressman from Georgia, Hank Johnson, who famously wondered if if we overpopulated Guam, whether the island nation would, would tip over. Um, Hank Johnson was addressing um, a, a anti-Israel organization in Philadelphia yesterday, and he said a couple of things that were, were kind of alarming, I thought. Uh, one of them, mm-hmm. uh, Congressman Johnson said, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, uh, quoting, there's been a steady stream, almost like termites can get into a residence and eat before you know that you've been eaten up and you fall in on yourself. There has been, and he's likening that to settlement activity that has marched forward, he says, with impunity. Um, how would, are you all aware that that was said, and and what's been the response, if any? And I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that Hank Johnson speaks for the larger Democratic Party or, or certainly even Hillary Clinton. But if you all are aware of that, what's what's your what's your response? I have seen several different publications who noted this, written articles about it. I haven't seen any very in-depth looks into what specifically he had said. Um, Me, myself, and as an Israeli, and I cannot speak for everyone, uh, but we hear these things all too often. It doesn't obviously necessarily mean that they're talking about all of us when they're talking about settlers in the West Bank. It is something that, unfortunately, we've gotten used to, getting a lot of comments uh, also about uh, BDS and so many artists who have canceled the shows coming here and speaking a lot against uh, the right-wing extremists and the the religious who tend to settle in these West Bank settlements. Um, These sort of comments, I don't know how widely they have been covered in Israel and whether or not people are aware of them. That being said, it it is something that is taken somewhat personally by those who read them. And there is a, I don't know statistics, but I know that I saw this one specifically in an English publication. I don't know which one it was. I cannot remember off the top of my head. But a lot of the settlers, and again, I do not know statistics, uh, they happen to be uh, Anglo-Israelis, many of them English speakers, as you saw the 13-year-old who was murdered in her bed, also an American citizen. How do they react to these sort of statements? How much do they actually pay attention to these sort of statements? I cannot speak on on their behalf and on their names uh, and whether or not they actually pay much attention to it or they continue living their lives because at the end of the day, that is where their home is. I'm Jim Williams, the host of the Politically Incorrect podcast. Our guest, Maria, Maria, I'm sorry, Savir of I-24 News in Israel. We have Tom Jackson and we have Joe Henderson. And we're talking now about uh, the global situation with regard to how uh, our next president, be it Hillary Clinton or be it Donald Trump, is being perceived in Europe and in the Middle East. And with that, Mariv, I have something that I'd like to ask you. One of the things that mm-hmm. we have uh, had, and you and I've discussed this actually on your air, as a matter of fact, has to do with terror in the United States. Now, you guys deal with it on a daily basis. It's something kind of new to us in the fact that, unfortunately, that we are getting the, the um, a situation where people are are self-radicalizing and or uh, taking uh, the law into their own hands, be it whether or not there's too many guns or not, we can debate that at another time. But um, the terror in the U.S. is something we are getting, trying to get our arms around. Is it something that ever becomes 
normal or are we in a, a new type of normal from your standpoint? I hate saying this, but it is something that at the end of the day yeah, becomes normal. And it's in specific instances, obviously, a couple months ago when, or even just a month and a half ago, two months ago, when we had a shooting here in central Tel Aviv, that was not normal. That is two armed men coming into the center of Tel Aviv right across the street from Israel's military headquarters and opening in fire in the middle of a busy restaurant. That for us was not normal. But when you're talking about car ramming attacks and Unfortunately, that has become a more of a day-to-day, -day. and when we do get alerts that that has happened, especially in the media, we're like, okay, well, it's another one. It's not a big deal. We don't open our show with it today. It's happened so many times before. Now, it has gone down over the last several months, obviously, back in October. We were seeing several such attacks on a daily basis, many of them deadlier than we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and it has died down. For Israelis, we also learn to live in a certain type of reality that helps security forces stop such attacks. When you walk into a mall, there's a security guard at every entrance, and he checks your bag with a metal detector to make sure there's no gun in there, no type of weapon, that there's no knife, that, you know, I walk into a mall in the United States, and I'm ready to open my purse, and then I remember that no one's there to look at it. And that's one of the things that has really helped security here find a way to minimize at least the number of attacks. Obviously, there's no way that you can stop them specifically with these lone wolf attacks that aren't only new to Europe, they're new to Israel as well. We've seen them uh, over in the last intifadas in the early 2000s, but not like we did this past year. This past year, we've come to know it, at least here in Israel, as a, the knife intifada or the youth intifada, because it was so many 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds who were listening to their older siblings or um, to locals speaking and deciding to just do this on their own wherever they may be. And you couldn't know when and where it was coming, whether or not you were in a busy street or in the middle of a mall. So obviously, if you were in the middle of a shopping center or anywhere that there is a security guard, it minimized that situation. But as we saw, as in Solana Market in Tel Aviv, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can stop every single such attack. And for us, it has become sort of a, a daily basis and a norm that we've gotten used to living with. And a lot of Israelis over the last past couple months are now saying, well, now the United States, now Europe, now they understand what we go through. Maybe now they'll understand the Israeli point of view more, not to mean that they're not sympathetic to the United States and to Europe, and, but they're also saying, this is what we've been going through. Now you can kind of see our point of view instead of always coming out against us. Joe, Tom? That's yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, with, that, with that understanding, um, let's, just, let's assume that, that that view is correct and that the U.S. gains a greater understanding in Europe. Do you think that that leads to a more coordinated effort to uh, eradicate ISIS and, and all of those terrorist threats? Or is that possible? Uh, well, first I'd like to reiterate that's not necessarily my point of view. That is just something that I've heard many Israelis say over the last couple of months. Whether or not it can help uh, eradicate the Islamic State, even Israel can't eradicate all such attacks. So you can't specifically say that what Israel has done over the years is what's going to stop IS attacks on European or American soil. But it can help, and a lot of European uh, countries and intelligence services and different security companies, at least lately and over the years, have been reaching out to Israeli companies in order to help with security. And they, I know a lot of uh, 
the former Israeli soldiers who go work for Israeli companies that outsource to Europe because they do a much better job and can teach security there exactly what to do. And I've heard over the last couple of weeks, uh, because I've done so many shows post-European attacks and the U.S. attacks, as to how Israeli officials and former ambassadors to the European Union think that European nations should be adopting Israeli methods. Tom, you had something uh, you wanted to ask, Marif? I just, I, I am just, every time I think about Israel, I am, am bewildered how people can, can live under the, under the pressure that they do of not knowing what might happen from one day to the next. And yet, I, I talk to people all the time who have uh, who have traveled there from the United States, and they come back praising the security and saying that they've they've traveled throughout Israel. They have gone to other parts of the Holy Land that are not uh, necessarily controlled uh, under Israeli control, and they come back saying, "Best experience of my life." That they always felt like they were safe, always felt like they were secure. So apparently, so. Despite the occasional attack, and and there are are often enough, they happen often enough to be extremely alarming. Is, Israel is doing something right, and as as Mariz points out, we might do well to emulate that what they're doing. But it, it, it's tough, and it, it's tough, and mm-hmm. it's it's difficult in a nation that clings as hard as as we do to personal liberty and and getting our backs up. Anytime somebody wants to inspect our, uh, inspect our persons or our purses or our backpacks when we go into a public place, I mean there was there was there was a huge blowback just a few years ago uh, in Tampa when the Buccaneers said that they were going to start pretty invasive inspections of people going into uh, Raymond James Stadium. But that makes a certain amount of sense to me because you don't have an absolute right to enter a public place like uh, like a ballpark or a stadium. So that's where I am. Marif, I would also like to highlight the fact that Israelis also um, have grown into a certain mentality. Uh, you know, you always have to say you can't let terrorism let you down. You can't let them win. If you let them, if you let it get to you, you let them win. And that's something that Israelis have uh, been sort of notorious for, and it extends beyond terrorism. Israelis like to live. And they do so to the fullest in any such regard. It, even if you don't have money in the bank, you're going on that vacation that you wanted to do. And I think that's something that also, because of that, it, it, when people come here, there's a much more relaxed atmosphere. People are sitting in cafes in the middle of the day. It doesn't matter if they have work, they'll take an hour off. And it's that mentality that really helps Israelis get past the fact that you live in such a reality where you're right. You don't know where and when will be the next attack, and some of them will surprise you, and some of them you'll say, "Well, that's just routine." Marif, one of the things, and let me once again reset the show. It's the politically incorrect podcast. I'm Jim Williams. We have Joe Henderson, we have Tom Jackson, and our special guest, all the way from Tel Aviv, joining us this evening, Marif Severe from I24 News. And Marif, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is there's been a great deal of conversation, as I'm sure you know, and we've had this discussion a bit on one of your programs, about uh, a number of, of people coming to the country, to the United States, uh, from whether it be Mexico or, or obviously from the Middle East, from Syria, a number of refugees. Israel has taken in a large number of refugees considering the size of the country. 
how has that situation been with the Syrian refugees and uh, with regard to the um, the handling of the refugees and and how they've been assimilated or, or working into the Israeli day-to-day um, -day living? I, well, as for Syrian refugees, uh, if Israel is taking them in, you don't see many of them coming towards the center in the Tel Aviv area. If that is true, I can see them being more relocated into Israel's north. Israel and the military itself it does hold a lot of activity along the border. It, some of it specifically is treating Syrians who cross the border, whether they be fighters or civilians who come over asking for some sort of aid, medical or whatever they can get. So there is that activity along the border that's not much very spoken about. Uh, it's somewhat here in Israel, but globally it's not something that's very very, that's not very it's not spoken about and it's not it's not widely known. And if there is some sort of activity that is highlighted in media, usually it's something like we saw last week where a drone crossed the border and Israel tried to shoot it down, but it was able to get back in the Syrian border or spill over from the war itself. But the humanitarian side seems to be lost. Guys, any questions or would uh, let's, you want to move on to another topic? We got plenty to, to chat about. Uh, Let's go to the end game. What, uh, how does Hillary Clinton on Thursday give a, an acceptance speech that spurs the Democratic Party to want to jump out and, and support her full-throatedly? Joe? Very carefully. <laughs> um, Before you get started, Joe, I, I thought you had a terrific column on uh, uh, on the apathy of the Democratic Party of not knowing how to move forward with with Hillary, I thought that was a, a a darn good piece. Thank you, I appreciate that, and and thanks for leading into this because what she has to do, and and this is why I, I said earlier, and Tom swatted me um, when I said that Bernie gave a terrific speech last night, because in this definition, terrific meant that he showed not only the convention hall, but the rest of the world, what enthusiasm was all about. And those people, 40, almost 43% of the vote, were ready to do whatever it took to get him elected. Hillary has not developed that kind of passion in back of her. What she has to do is, is give Bernie's supporters a reason to believe that she can carry the ball over the goal line for them. Uh, I think it's 50-50, to be honest with you. Uh, she's not a gifted speaker, particularly. Um, once we get past the, you know, the, the celebratory thing of her being the first woman to be, a ma to be the uh, major party candidate for president, she's going to have to show those people in that convention hall and around the country why they should choose her over Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, is uh, as I pointed out in that column, he has got the same kind of enthusiasm in back of him that uh, Bernie Sanders had from his people. Hillary's got to find that somehow. She's got to do that Thursday night because if she leaves the convention with everybody kind of going, meh, she's in trouble. You know, Joe, one of the things I've got in a column coming out tomorrow is that I don't think there's 
ever been a presidential candidate who needs the surrogates that she's got any more than Hillary Clinton does. And that it feeds into your point being that she's not really a very good orator. She's, she's very good in, a, in small groups of, you know, uh, 10 to 100 people, but she's not good in the big, uh, in the big uh, house and the big rooms. And I think that's why you've got the Elizabeth Warrens, you've got the Bernie Sanders, you've got the, um, you know, you've got President Obama, certainly Michelle Obama is going to be big, Joe Biden's going to be huge. All of those surrogates are going to be uh, out running uh, throughout the country, doing as much of her bidding and helping her as much as possible. And I think that might be her best situation is because she does have some surrogates. And Tommy, last time we chatted, you said that actually the fact that she does have those surrogates could help Trump from his standpoint. Well, I, 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 the the one thing that Hillary Clinton does for Republicans is, and people who are independents, unaffiliated, on the center right and the right, uh, again, is she is a the consummate uniter. I mean, what Donald Trump can't do for the Re- Republican Party, I think Hillary Clinton can. And so we're going to be talking, and I think that there's going to be enthusiasm on both sides. So instead of just being able to get your base out, as, as Barack Obama did to, to beat Mitt Romney in 2012, I think that this is one of those races that's going to come down to where are the unaffiliated, where are the independents going to go. And so I don't think that either of these conventions a month from now are going to mean a doggone thing. This is going to be a convention, a, a, an election that I think pivots based on the debates. I think that those are really going to be the opportunity. This is going to be like 19 – this has the possibility to be 1980 all over again where Jimmy Carter ran consistently ahead of Ronald Reagan until the night – until after the night they shared the stage, and Americans got to look at this guy and said, you know what? I think I do trust him with the nuclear codes. I think just as likely that Americans will, will come away from the debates uh, – this time around saying, I don't want that orange-headed goon anywhere close <laughs> to the nuclear football. I mean, and, 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 I, and I say that as somebody who could never pull the, pull the, uh, le- the lever for, for Hillary Clinton. But I, I got a feeling that what's going to come down is the debates will be everything. Yes, well. I, com- I concur with that, Tom. I actually do. And I think if Hillary – you know, if she could be uh, given a, a pass to tap out and let Elizabeth Warren in there, they could, they could sell it as a pay-per-view and make a lot of money. Uh, Elizabeth Warren makes the case for Hillary better than Hillary does, and that's going to change energy. going forward. Yeah, yeah. But again, I, again, I think that, she, that that Elizabeth Warren, yes, she energizes certain folks, but those people are 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 prone to be energized on on Hillary's half, uh, behalf to begin with. I also think that she energizes Americans who don't want people getting in their business, and there are probably just as many of them as there are people who are in favor of big government, which is a weird place for us to be in a, as a country. 50-50. There you go. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, let's, I'll tell you what, let's do, uh, let's do final rounds and uh, – 
all three of you will get a shot at uh, at your final takes, and then I'll do the housekeeping, making sure that everybody gets a chance to tell us where to find you on social media and all that good stuff. So as we wrap up this edition of the Politically Incorrect podcast, let's start with, because she is our guest and she's a wonderful human being, Marev Sevier, it's your turn. Billy Year. I'm sorry? No, continue with your question. Sorry. No, the question the question was, I, I simply wanted to give you an opportunity for your observations this week and what you think is going to happen going forward. Well, my observations, uh, I'm going to take it a little bit from a Middle Eastern and European point of view. The conventions here are, are spoken about almost on a daily basis. I mean, just like every other um, global news networks and even the Israeli local ones, the three big channels all have reporters who were in Cleveland last week, are in Philadelphia this week. But as we may, we also spoke about earlier in this podcast is global terror, and we've seen so many terror attacks over the last uh, 10 days in France and Germany that they are sort of getting lost because the attention span here as we get closer to November will turn more towards the, the U.S. elections. And even though it's spoken about and it's constantly headlined uh, over the past couple of weeks, I don't think that the U.S. elections are going to get that much attention, specifically from you know, the common folk, and I'm not talking about the media. The media is having a field day with everything that's going on in the United States and following it like hawks. But I don't think you'll get as many people on the streets talking about it until it gets closer, until one of the candidates does something, again, that's completely outrageous that gets all the world's attention because of everything that is plaguing Europe as of right now, specifically with Islamic terror. Tom, you're up. I don't know how I could improve on that. I thought it was interesting that on the first night of the of the DNC, there was virtually no mention of, of, of terror of, of ISIS and the crisis that uh, that this is foisting upon the West, uh, I, I, and I get that that uh, that they're parceling themes out, and that last night was not uh, it was not the, uh, the the terror theme. But I think that as we move forward, as more of these incidents continue to happen, and 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 focus the the attention of the West on what's going on with ISIS and, and radical Islam, that I don't think that it's something that can be avoided. And and that is, I think that that's, that is Donald Trump's opening, that he is the guy who is consistently tough and radical on radical Islam and wants to be the one guy who wipes it out. I don't know how he does it necessarily, but he's the guy who's talking tough. And I think that that, if, if, if the debates don't settle this, then events will, and if if the state of terror continues, then that augurs well for the one guy who says, I'm not going to stand for it, and we're going to change our policies of the past eight years. Hillary Clinton can't very well do that. She's been a partner in all that. Joseph? And to take that point by my learned colleague, uh, Tom, uh, and look at it from the other side, Hillary needs to convince somehow America in the next few months that Donald Trump can't be trusted with the codes, that he's crazy as a loon, and that he is not only crazy, he's dangerous. And as much as we might like a cowboy to swoop in and solve the problem of ISIS with a, with a snap of a finger, 
we all know it's not going to happen. It requires judgment. It requires experience. It requires coordination, none of which Donald Trump has shown that he is capable of doing. Right now, that doesn't matter because a large percentage of the voters have heard nothing uh, for the past, I don't know, 8, 12, 50 years that Hillary Clinton is a terrible human being. It's repeated day after day after day after day on conservative radio, on Fox News, and other places. So she can't win the support of those people. It's not ever going to happen. What she has to do is convince the people still out there trying to make up her mind that she is the one ultimately they have to trust to handle this situation. That will be her biggest challenge going forward. You know, one thing that uh, that I note is that over uh, over the years, all the way back to when she was first lady, Hillary Clinton has always been far more hawkish than her husband, far more hawkish than the man she worked for in Barack Obama, and a whole lot closer to Benjamin Netanyahu than she is to uh, to uh, to President Obama. So we'll see how it works out, but. Uh, all right, guys, let me go this way. You're on the political, Politically Incorrect podcast. Uh, Mariv, give us your social media and how people can find you on the web. The best way to find me is you can either search the name in Twitter, Marav Savir, spelled M-E-R-A-V-S-A-V-I-R, or if you just want to look up the, the username, it's M-Savir, S-A-V-I-R underscore I-24. Tom Jackson. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas J A X Tampa, Thomas Jacks Tampa, and I've got a uh, a Facebook page, Tom Jackson Journalist Entrepreneur. Joseph, you can find me on Twitter at J the initial J Henderson Tampa, all one word, and you can find me on Facebook. Uh, at Joe Henderson, commentary, columns, and such. And you can find me, Jim Williams, at uh, on Twitter at ntfla underscore politics. That's ntfla underscore politics. Facebook, it's Jim Williams Examiner. That's Jim Williams Examiner. And uh, you can find all of us at NewstalkFlorida.com, and we can watch Mariv Savir on I-24. It's, uh, folks, you can download the app. It's fantastic. And she's got one of the coolest studios in the world with the uh, Mediterranean there in the background. That's a very neat situation. Mariv, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, and uh, we really appreciate you coming by. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you very much for joining us on this edition of the Politically Incorrect podcast. You can get us at iTunes. You can get us at the Google Play Store. You can also get us at uh, the uh, store at News Talk Florida, as well as at the uh, podcast situation with regard to finding us at the uh, Oh, goodness. Great. Good time to forget it, ladies and gentlemen. Spit it out, Jim. Yes. Blog Come on, Talk Jim. Radio. Thank you. I appreciate it. My paper <laughs> my paper blew away five seconds ago. It's Blog Talk Radio. There you go. Blog Talk Radio. 
iTunes, Google Play, and I'll get it straight next time if the darn paper doesn't blow away from me. So this is again, a well-oiled machine here, folks. Well-oiled machine. It all, it all came apart at the end. Sorry, gang. Uh, again, thanks for for coming by, and we will look, see you uh, after Thursday when we uh, chat on Thursday about the closing of the uh, Democratic Convention and seeing what's going on. And again, thanks to Mariv, to Joe, and to Tom. We'll be seeing you soon. I'm Jim Williams. Politically Incorrect Podcast. Have a good evening.